Good evening. My name is Nancy Malkiel, and it is my privilege on behalf of the Princeton University Committee on Public Lectures to introduce this year's Stafford Little Lecture. Uh, the Stafford Little Lectureship, I might uh, mention, uh, has a remarkable lineage at Princeton. Previous lecturers have included Grover Cleveland, Theodore Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Henry L. Stimson, Thurgood Marshall, and Gunnar Myrdal. Tonight's speaker clearly belongs in this distinguished company. A social psychologist of international renown, Claude Steele is the Lucy Stern Professor in the Social Sciences and past chair of the Department of Psychology at Stanford University, where he has taught since 1991. Previously, he was a faculty member at the universities of Michigan, Washington, and Utah. Professor Steele is president-elect of the Society for Personality and Social Psychology and has served as president of the Western Psychological Association, as chair of the executive committee of the Society of Experimental Social Psychology, as a member of the board of the American Psychological Society, and on the editorial boards of numerous journals and study sections at both the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. His many awards include elections to membership in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the National Academy of Education. The author of more than 50 published papers, Professor Steele has conducted pioneering research in three main areas. Addictive behaviors, notably involving alcohol and drug use, processes of self-evaluation with particular reference to how people cope with threats to their self-image, and the influence of group stereotypes on intellectual performance and academic identities, focusing especially on the negative effects of stereotype threat on the academic performance of African Americans and of women in math and science. Professor Steele's topic for this evening's lecture is how stereotypes can shape intellectual performance and identity. He's a great friend of Princeton, and I'm delighted to welcome him back this evening for the Stafford Little Public Lecture. Turned on. Well, it's a, it's a really a great uh, uh, pleasure to be here. It seems like I'm on a four-year cycle, so uh, I hope I get invited back <laughs> in, the, in the next four years. But I always have such a warm and um, interesting, stimulating uh, time here that it's, I, I know people think sometimes they run me hard while I'm here, but I really have a great time at it, so I, I want you to know that. Um, I uh, today would like to uh, talk about our uh, program of research and, and to do it in such a way that it kind of 
uh, broadens uh, your understanding of the first, your understanding of some of the issues that, that we take up. Uh, and also maybe, uh, at, especially toward the end of it, I'd like to be able to point to some specific ideas about how to address some of the, the issues and problems that uh, I'll raise. Uh, I will be focusing on uh, two central concepts in our research, stereotype threat uh, and disidentification. Uh, these are, I, I hasten to point out, very general uh, processes. They're a part of everybody's life. Everybody experiences these things, if not on a daily basis, then very frequently. Uh, <clears throat> and in the field of social psychology, they are increasingly researched as very general kinds of processes. Uh, but I suppose my uh, uh, primary interest has always been to use them as uh, ideas for how to understand some of the achievement problems and challenges that are faced by groups whose uh, abilities are negatively stereotyped in our society. We've done an awful lot of work with, in relation to women in math, uh, with regard to minority groups, uh, African Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans, uh, in, in uh, a broad set of academic uh, domains. Uh, I, I, this work really begins, I think, with uh, an interest in trying to understand what has come to be known as the achievement gap uh, problem, uh, especially this last year. That, that terminology seems to have, have evolved and kind of hardened into a general uh, public framework for uh, thinking about these uh, problems. It usually refers to uh, a minority group of students not getting the same test scores or the same grades as other students in their school or in their district or something or, or in their university. Um, there are a number of, of things about this gap that entice a psychologist to get interested uh, in it. Uh, I think certainly as we began to get interested in it, the dominant understandings of this gap uh, have to do with sort of structural inequalities, uh, inequalities of opportunity, uh, inequalities of economic uh, support scaffolding for uh, edu education, uh, and that most of the gap it was rooted in those kinds of things. Uh, however, as, as you begin to look at that literature more closely, you see some, some things that don't quite fit that general framework. Uh, for example, the gap uh, occurs among uh, students who come from uh, strong middle class backgrounds uh, as much as it does from students who come uh, from lower class backgrounds. Uh, it occurs at elite colleges and universities as much as it does at less selective colleges and universities. It occurs at professional schools level uh, uh, as much as it occurs in inner city classrooms. Um, the Shape of the River book that uh, your former president, Bill Bowen, uh, with Derek Bach wrote, even reports data uh, showing that the grade gap uh, for uh, African-American college students uh, is often greater for those students who enter college with the highest SAT scores. Uh, so for a variety of reasons, um, the complete understanding of this gap may not be due, you know, may not be had by simply looking at structural uh, and, and sometimes cultural factors. It invites in a psychologist, and that's where we have sort of entered the, uh, the picture. Uh, in, in my remarks, I'd like to do a couple of uh, things. Um, 
<coughs> First, I'd like to just dis define a little bit what stereotype threat is and what disidentification is, just to give some uh, I idea of the, the concepts that, that we're using. Uh, then I'd like to describe, uh, if, you, if some of you have, have heard this talk or seen this research, please bear with this part of it. Uh, I, I think it's just useful to uh, uh, describe some of the early experiments, uh, at least briefly, to give some illustration of what uh, I, I'm talking about with regard to stereotype threat and the kind of role they can play in intellectual performance. Uh, then I would like to kind of uh, go into newer territory where we expand this model, this understanding of uh, stereotype threat into a broader kind of identity threat uh, connected to uh, a variety of social identities, trying to graph out a kind of theory, a picture of what that's like, a little bit of evidence uh, testing that idea, and then using that idea to derive some principles of remedy. What can you do about this? this uh, phenomenon in American society, in American schooling, and especially what can you do about it in, in higher education. So that's kind of the, the flow of, of uh, things, the outline I, uh, I have in mind. Uh, <clears throat> stereotype threat is uh, a, a very um, a simple thing. It's simply being in a situation uh, or doing something for which a negative stereotype about a group that you are a part of becomes relevant to what you're doing, to you in that situation. Uh, as soon as that happens, uh, you know that you could be judged or treated in terms of that stereotype. And that really is the heart of, uh, of the matter. Uh, uh, as I always stress, everybody is a part of some group, uh, and almost every group you can think of, every group I can think of, uh, has negative stereotypes about it. And when you're in a situation where one of those negative stereotypes applies, you may have this kind of experience where you recognize that this stereotype applies or you sense it at some level or another, and you become aware that you could be judged or treated in terms of this uh, stereotype. And you, uh, if you care about what you're doing, that experience, the, the prospect of being reduced to uh, a stereotype in an area or in an activity that you care about uh, could be upsetting and distracting and could interfere with your behavior right there. Uh, uh, I've been using recently this example of my experience as a department chairman to illustrate the, a, a completely different form of stereotype threat than, than I often talk about in, in my research. Uh, but as, a, as the chairman of the psychology department, uh, in the middle of my term, the department got shifted from being in the social sciences to being in the natural sciences. Uh, and all of a sudden, I had to report to uh, a natural science dean and compete with natural science department chairs for resources for uh, my department. Uh, and you know, while it was the case that nobody said a word to me about anything, uh, I began to recognize that I was feeling a form of stereotype threat. <laughs> and here the stereotype was about my profession, my, my science, that, that perhaps psychology would not be seen as the same kind of rigorous, important, hard-nosed science that, you know, astrophysics was, or molecular biology, or, you know, something self-evidently important like that. Uh, and <laughs> And, and I, I began to, you know, I, I noticed it because I began to see
changing my own behavior. I was, without really being aware of it, I was contending with that possible stereotype, with the possibility of being seen in, the, in terms of that stereotype. So, you know, I would, uh, in, the, in the presence of the dean, I would present psychology as a really hard-nosed science, you know. It's really basically a neuroscience. That's the basic of, <laughs> basis of what uh, psychology was, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a social psychologist, so this was an act of self-hatred that I was... <laughs> engaging in, <laughs> uh, you know, to deflect the possibility of being seen this way and having my appeals for money usually <laughs> uh, to be interpreted in, 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 in this way and besmirched by the stereotype. Well, uh, that's really what it is. And, and you can see that, you know, it's sort of a, a first cousin of just any kind of reputational threat. You know, you sort of interact with somebody who you know has a certain image of you, maybe, because they've heard about something and they're perhaps judging you in a certain way. You know, Aunt Matilda thinks that you're always late or your father thinks that you always get up too late in the morning and they've got these views of you and you're, you're having to contend with them and argue with them. They almost have a life of their own in this sense and the only difference between those kinds of of threats and a, kind of a stereotype threat that, that that we're talking about in our research is that stereotype threat comes from from ideas about your group that are just broadly disseminated in society that just are out there about your group and so when you're in situations where those views become relevant to what you're doing uh, you can feel this apprehension about re being reduced to uh, a stereotype and that's the heart of the of the idea. Um, we have used it to try to understand whether that experience, like the experience I, I had as a, as a department chair, whether that kind of threat could play a role in the academic experience and outcomes of groups of people whose intellectual academic abilities are negatively stereotyped in the broader society. Could the kind of threat that I'm talking about uh, play a role in that group's uh, academic experience? That's the thrust of this, the inquiry, the question of, of, uh, of this research. Uh, theoretically, at least, this could happen in two ways. Uh, you can see that right there, if this threat happens to a person, right there in the middle of an important performance situation, if you realize that uh, based on your group you could be judged in terms of a negative stereotype, right there in the middle of an important intellectual uh, performance, like a standardized test, or talking to a faculty member, or talking to a TA about a problem, uh, this possibility of being seen stereotypically treated stereotypically uh, could be upsetting and distracting. You may not know whether it's happening. It's just like me as the department, you don't know whether they're really thinking that way. Nobody said a word to me about it, but I know it's sort of a possibility, and so I find myself contending with that possibility. Well, does contending with that possibility when it's a negative stereotype about your, uh, your, your group's uh, abilities, does that interfere directly with uh, performance? That's one of the basic questions. Uh, and, and then I suppose the other uh, reasoning is that over time, <clears throat> uh, a person experiencing this, this extra threat in uh, a, a domain of life like school or like a mathematics curriculum or if we flip this around and we talked about uh, racial stereotypes in the sports domain, uh, whites may feel a good deal of stereotype in a, you know, trying out for elite basketball. You might, there might be a, a serious amount of stereotype threat there. 
Well, does anybody uh, who's, who's negatively stereotyped in a domain, if they have to contend with that threat over time uh, in that domain for a long period of time, people may just get tired of it, uh, weary of kind of contending with that, behaving like I did as the department chair. And uh, over time, I think over in, in important domains like schooling, over a considerable amount of time, uh, a person may disidentify with the domain, may drop the domain as a personal identity, as something to which one holds oneself and one's self-esteem accountable. One may just kind of say, well, you know, that's not going to be me. I'm just not going to live my life in that domain because it's just too weighty. And I, on a daily basis, feel this way about it, and, and uh, it's easier to go find another domain where I feel more comfortable. So, in those ways, just to uh, uh, sketch this out, you know, stereotypes, the stereotype structure uh, that characterizes a given society can come down into the lives of individuals and affect very important performances like uh, academic performances, standardized test performances, uh, and shape the kinds of identities that we feel comfortable holding and thereby shape the identities that whole groups of people feel comfortable uh, holding. Uh, and you, you might, uh, these, this is sort of a, an attempt to describe how the, the, the stereotypes, the ideas out there about groups can, can have real consequential effects in, in people's lives. They're not just phantoms, but real, have real consequences. Uh, and you can imagine a, a different society where the stereotypes are different. The whole, the effects they have on people would be completely different. Uh, different groups would be doing different things depending on the kinds of, of uh, stereotypes that characterize a society. If I, if I don't forget, I always, uh, uh, I like to point to the fact that a lot of our research on women in math, for example, does not, doesn't show anything when you move to a society like Poland where, this is, where the stereotypes about women and math ability are very different. The, the, the stereotype, the effects are, are, are very different. So. Uh, I'm trying to characterize, uh, a, using this to characterize a society at a given uh, a point in its history, the nature of its stereotypes and how those stereotypes shape the lives of individuals and groups. Okay, that's the theory. That's all you have to <laughs> keep in mind to have a general operational uh, uh, feel for what we're doing. Uh, an experiment. One of the, the, the first one we did was a very simple one with women in math. We got women at the University of Michigan who were really good at math in the top 15 percentile in, in terms of entering uh, credentials, their quantitative SAT score. They'd taken at least two calculus courses and they'd gotten at least Bs in those calculus courses. They told us that calculus and math was very important to their personal goals and to their professional futures. So they're into it and they're good at it. Uh, and we got men just as good, same, same uh, uh, kind of uh, indicators, same kind of measures. Uh, we brought them into the laboratory one at a time and gave them a very difficult math test, uh, one that's kind of at the frontier of their skills, uh, a, a section of the graduate record exam you take if you're majoring in, in math, not the general quantitative section, but the math subsection of the, of the graduate record, so it's really a hard exam. And we picked it for that reason because we knew it would cause frustration, and it is frustration that, according to our reasoning, makes the taking of this test a different experience for a woman than it is for a man. Uh, and the reason being that when a woman experience, especially one who cares about this, experiences frustration on that test, 
uh, there does emerge, whether it's conscious or semi-conscious or where, it's difficult to say. But there emerges a kind of stereotype out there about women's reputed limitations in math ability that become relevant to her all of a sudden. The frustration on this exam makes that stereotype relevant to her as an individual, as a, as, as a person. And uh, uh, because she's a woman that cares a great deal about this domain and succeeding in it, the prospect that her frustration is confirming or will cause her to be seen as confirming a negative stereotype about her group's ability should be upsetting and distracting and should uh, undermine her performance right there in the middle of that test compared to men. Men in that same situation are going to experience frustration, but uh, they're not experiencing the extra fr frustration of possibly confirming a negative reputation about their group in any way. That's not, a, that's not there. They may be worried about their own ability, but they're not worried about, about confirming some mysterious alleged limitation of ability that could affect their whole future in this domain. So that pressure is out of the situation. Well, uh, we give them the test, and indeed, women uh, don't perform, even though they have exactly the same skills. We've matched them very carefully. Uh, women do not perform as well as men in that uh, situation. Uh, the critical test, however, for whether stereotype threat is the factor that's repressing their performance in this situation is, th is that we have to do something that takes the stereotype threat out of that situation, and you should observe their performance going up to match that of men. If what it is that's repressing their performance is the stereotype threat I'm describing, the fact that frustration makes them uh, aware at some level or another of, being, uh, of confirming the stereotype or being seen to confirm the stereotype, if that anxiety and distraction caused by that is undermining their performance, if you, take, you make the stereotype about their group irrelevant to them, then you should see their performance go up. Uh, and we did this in a very simple way, just before they sat down to take the test, we told them, you may have heard that women do not do as well as men on certain math tests. Uh, that, uh, and you may have heard that. But that is not true for this particular math test. This particular math test uh, has been given forever, and it has never shown a difference between men and women, and it never will show a difference between men and women. And so, uh, in a sense, <laughs> you're, you're creating this almost unusual in the sense it's not like real life. You're creating a situation where, where now as women experience the frustration on that, on that test, the reputation about their group isn't relevant to how well they're to, to, to interpreting that. They're not, they're not apprehensive now that their frustration means that they're confirming a stereotype or a limitation of ability about women because this test can't test any limitations connected to gender in, in that way. So we create in the laboratory with this instruction a kind of unusual circumstance for women such that the stereotype about their group is, can't be seen as relevant to their performance on, on this particular test. Well, uh, it works. Uh, here's what the data... Uh, look like, if you can, uh, if everybody can see that, I, I hope. Uh, the important thing to notice is that in this uh, condition, this is where, uh, in, in this particular experiment, we said 
that, this, that, that there are gender differences on the test. You don't have to say anything. You just give women and men the test, and everybody assumes this, and you get this pattern of results where women are substantially underperforming in relation to men. But you take the stereotype threat out of the situation through the instructions that I just described, and women's performance goes up to match that of men. Uh, some of you may be noting that men's performance comes down a little bit. Um, <laughs> in that situation, and um, uh, we can come back to that, but, <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there is something about being on the upside of somebody else's negative stereotype, I think, that kind of, you know, <laughs> gives you a sense of, of belonging. I used the example of being, a, 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 you know, a, an African-American male um, uh, who plays a terrible game of gym basketball, uh, but staying in that domain much longer than my skills ever warranted because my group is very positively stereotyped in that domain. And, uh, you know, you can endure all kinds of frustration without interpreting it as, some, as a problem that you should leave, you know. Uh, <laughs> but if your group is negatively stereotyped in that domain, a little frustration says, well, maybe I should find something else, right? This is not... Uh... So I think that's what we're observing here a, a little bit. Um, Next, we did the same kind of experiment in, the, in these uh, early days uh, with regard to race, and these experiments were done uh, at Stanford, and they're designed to kind of parallel the ex experiments with uh, uh, gender here. Uh, we got very talented uh, black and white Stanford uh, students, and we brought them into the laboratory one at a time, and this time we gave them a very difficult graduate record section, literature section, verbal ability section. Uh, it's not the, 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 the uh, verbal section of the GRE, it's the section you take if you're going to go to graduate school in literature. Hard. And big, long reading comprehension uh, passages and all that sort of, you know, tangled references you have to make and so on. Uh, <laughs> I could go off on test at any minute, so you'll have to <coughs> stop me if you detect some disrespect for <laughs> standardized tests. We can come back to that later. But <laughs> this, this work has given me a very different view of, these, of what standardized tests mean than <laughs> I had maybe before. At any rate... We give them this test, and again, our, our prediction is quite uh, similar, uh, that we've got a test here that's going to cause a lot of frustration. And that for the African-American uh, students here, there is uh, a kind of stereotype allegation out there that it becomes relevant to them in, as they experience this frustration. As they experience this frustration, it's like, uh-oh, you know, am I meeting my Waterloo here with regard to my verbal abilities, or will I be seen as having lower verbal abilities because of that stereotype out there about my group and maybe just the kind of semi-conscious thinking and distraction about that should take away resources, cognitive resources that could be applied to the test and my performance should go down in that, in that kind of situation. But again, if that's true, we ought to be able to fix things, so to speak, by designing the instructions of the test so that that stereotype about one's group is not relevant to that performance. And we do that in this experiment in a, by simply uh, saying as they sit down to take the same test, mind you, that, uh, look, this test that you're taking, it's an instrument that we use for studying problem solving in our laboratory. It is not a measure of individual differences in verbal ability. It can't measure your verbal ability. It's just something we use to study problem solving in general. Please do the best you, you can. So in this situation now, as they experience frustration, 
the stereotype about their group is not relevant to interpreting that frustration because this is a test that isn't, can't diagnose one's individual ability. For African Americans, the negative stereotype is about intellectual ability in general. And so it becomes unrelated to a performance that is not that is presented as not being a measure of ability. So you turn off the stereotype. You make it irrelevant to, to doing this particular thing because it's not really uh, relevant to. Uh, uh, it's not about ability here. So um, you get when you do that a very similar uh, pattern of, of uh, results. That for. Um, African-American students, what did I do with my pointer? Oh, here it is. For, uh, when the test is diagnostic uh, of, of ability, then the uh, uh, African-American students are performing lower, even though coming into this experiment, they're equated for uh, every indicator you can get of, of uh, ability. So the ability is the same. Skills here really are, are quite the same. But under this uh, pressure now of performing on a very frustrating task that's very important to them at the frontier of their skills, uh, where the, rel the stereotype can be relevant as an interpretation of their experience and may, and may be used by observers to judge them and so on. That whole dynamic of thinking about that or perhaps sensing that undermines their performance there. And uh, their performance goes up when you remove that possibility by uh, simply representing the test as not a test of, of ability. So you, on, on, on this particular test, that stereotype about ability just isn't relevant. Uh, to interpreting their frustration. Well, uh, these kind, these are, 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 are kind of the, the early uh, experiments, and uh, uh, over the years, uh, a, a good number of other, uh, you know, there have been a, a variety of replications of various stereotype threat uh, uh, studies, looking at a number of, of parameters. For example, you can, the one interest we had very quickly was, well, we want to make sure that uh, this is something that is a general process and not something that characterizes a particular group. And maybe there's something about women and maybe there's something about African Americans as a group that may make them especially susceptible to this threat. So you need to quickly see if you can induce stereotype threat in any group. So we get a group of males. Uh, of engineering graduate students at Stanford University, and we give them a very difficult uh, math test, something way at the frontier of their skills. They're graduate students, but this is a really hard math test, and we tell them just before they take the math test that this is a test on which Asians tend to do better than whites. So now you've, you've created, a, for a group of people who who go through society and are, are not generally, whose abilities in math are not negatively stereotyped, but you put them under a form of stereotype threat by comparing them to another group's positive stereotype. So you're, you're creating, a, and, and again, uh, this, this is for people who, who care a great deal about doing this. This is, uh, I'll come back to stress this uh, even more in a minute, but stereotype threat really happens uh, to people who care a lot about it. Uh, it's then that the prospect of being seen stereotypically is upsetting and, and, and able to, to uh, undermine a performance like a performance on, on, on this. Uh, there's a, another number of uh, kind of uh, cute uh, experiments that are worth just mentioning to kind of illustrate the, the generality 
of the effect. For example, there's one by Jeff Stone and his colleagues at the University of Arizona that I, I always like. It's in the sports domain. And here the task that the subjects are performing is not an intellectual task, it's a, it's a golfing task. It's represented as an athletic test. And you come into the laboratory and you, you golf 10 holes of golf in a little room. And your score is the number of strokes that it takes you to golf through these uh, 10 holes. And he gets elite athletes at the University of Arizona, white athletes and black athletes. These are really good athletes. And he says, go in and do this task. And in the condition where he wants the stereotype to be, uh, to put uh, whites under stereotype threat and favor blacks, he says just before they take this uh, test, this is a test of natural athletic ability. <laughs> Do the task. <laughs> Uh, again, you know, you're a white athlete really wants to do well, right? But there's that stereotype there, and as you work through this task, you get distracted, and their performance uh, goes down there. It's worse than black subjects in that um, uh, situation. But you can reverse the tables uh, very easily, as he did in this experiment, by simply saying just before they take this golfing task that, uh, look, uh, this is a test of sports strategic intelligence. <laughs> Right? That's a different stereotype. Uh, favors a different group, disfavors another group, and their performances begin to uh, flip over in, in, the, in this regard. Um, uh, research Asian women is sort of an interesting uh, uh, you know, question there because they have two social identities uh, that are stereotyped with regard to math in the opposite direction. So uh, with regard to uh, their ethnic identity, uh, they are positively stereotyped. Uh, I see Howie and his students sitting over there. They're doing this kind of research. Uh, and uh, Howard Taylor. <laughs> you, you may know him as Howie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, this, was, this was done a, a couple of years ago. And, and the, the idea was that you, the, the, other, the other identity they have, the other social identity they have, as, as, as women, and so that's negatively stereotyped in the math domain. And so just before they take a difficult math test, in one condition, the last thing they write down as on a demographic questionnaire is their uh, ethnicity. And when they write down their ethnicity, they perform just as well as the men in that, on that subsequent test. But when they write down their gender, they perform worse than the men on that uh, test. So, you know, you get perform performances moving around uh, uh, in response to the stereotype climate in, in the air. And I, I know sometimes it seems like uh, stereotypes are, because we have a very, and again, I don't want to, I'm tempted to digress here and I better not. <laughs> but we have a very individualistic view of how people function. And we see ourselves as very independent from our life context and the circumstances of our life. And it's hard to see how contextual things like the relevance of a stereotype or the irrelevance of a stereotype can be as influential uh, as they are. But remember, we're not often very guarded about these things. We're not often paying attention to these things. We couldn't possibly uh, be so astute as to know uh, in a precise way when we're under stereotype threat or not under stereotype threat. And it's in that way that they, they, they come in and have these kinds of influences uh, on, on behavior. 
Well, we also know a lot of things here over the years about what's going on in the subjects in, in this condition, for example. What's the experience like? Well, we know, for example, that uh, the stereotype is cognitively activated, so to speak. That is, as soon as these uh, black students sit down to take a difficult standardized test, and these, again, are students that really want to do well, and go on to graduate school, as soon as they sit down to take that test and they see that these items, through sample items, are going to be difficult, racial stereotypes are cognitively activated. And you can measure them in all kinds of ways. In psychology, we have a variety of ways. And the most dominant way we've done it here is just word completions, where you're given a number of letters in a word and you have to finish the word. And we've got you working through a list of 80 words as fast as you can. And we know by our devious ways that there are 10 words on that list that could be completed in terms of racial stereotypes. And uh, for black students who are in this condition, about to take a, a, a diagnostic test, a test that can measure their verbal abilities, that they finish those words more in terms of racial stereotypes than they do in this condition, for example, where the test is not diagnostic ability. So we have a very good sense through evidence like that that the stereotype is activated. Uh, we also know that there is a that there's a certain motivational state going on here where the students are trying to deflect being seen in terms of the stereotype. Uh, I always uh, use a story here uh, because I've sort of developed a label for this effect from it, but Brent Staples, who's an editorial writer for the New York Times, an African-American, describes in an autobiography of his when he went to... Um, graduate school at the University of Chicago, he's walking down the streets of Hyde Park and he notices that people are kind of avoiding him a little and you know he begins to realize that he's being seen through the lens of a stereotype, a racial stereotype that he may be a menacing black male dressed as a student and so on. Uh, and no offense, but <laughs> so um, he learns uh, as he's, you know, he's, he goes into stores, he gets followed around and so on. That's quite, a, it's quite an interesting episode because he gets into a relationship he has with Saul Bellow in this way. And I mean, it's, it's quite uh, an exotic story. But one thing he learned as a tactic was to, to whistle Vivaldi as he walks down the street. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so... You know, he's whistling Vivaldi, and you can see what that, you can see what that does, is that that punctures the, the ability of the people around him to see him in terms of that, of that stereotype. So uh, all of a sudden, they relax, you know, and he relaxes, and interactions go on very relatively uh, normally uh, after that. And it's very nice in illustrating a couple things. One, just how stereotype threat works, that he doesn't, you know, he, he begins to sense He's being seen in a certain way. And he develops a tactic, probably without thinking about it, that deflects that, a sort of counter-stereotypic self-presentation. Well, everybody does that when you don't want to be seen in terms of a negative stereotype about a group that you're a part of. You kind of behave in a counter-stereotypic way. Uh, and, and to deflect that possibility, and that's what he's doing here. It also illustrates the fact that for you to experience stereotype threats, you don't have to believe the stereotype at all. I mean, he's not really believing himself that, that either African-Americans are necessarily menacing or certainly that he is a menacing African-American male. He, just, that, he doesn't have to believe that at all. He just has to know that other people might see him that way, and then he has to contend with the stereotype. And that's how it works. There's a lot of tendency to reduce this kind of process to some internalized 
state, like low expectancies or low self-esteem or something. And uh, I, I think it has a component of that sometimes. But I want to resist that as much as possible because it doesn't have to be there at all for this pressure uh, to be there. Uh, we also know that in this condition, the uh, subject's blood pressure is very elevated, rather dramatically elevated, and that it is, it is the uh, vascular form of blood pressure uh, that is usually an indicative of, of being in a situation that's threatening and you can't quite cope with it effectively. Then the, 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 you get a, a vascular constriction, which is a precursor to uh, hypertension, as opposed to a blood pressure that's coming from the heart pumping faster and dealing with with things. That can happen more when you are threatened, but you think you can cope with it. You kind of accelerate in that direction. But when you think you can't cope with it, you get this other form of, of blood pressure. And that's exactly what's, what's happening in these subjects and not happening in these subjects and not happening in these subjects and, uh, and so on. So we have a better picture about what's going on in this uh, uh, experience of stereotype threat in this uh, condition. We also know that, uh, and, and this is very uh, important, is that for a person to experience this threat, they have to be identified with the domain. They have to care about the domain. You can imagine, for example, uh, a woman taking a math test. Uh, if, if she doesn't care about math, math's not her thing. Then you take a math test, you know, you, you might obey the experimenter and do the best you can, but it starts to be, be frustrating and you start to say, well, you know, how much longer is this going to go on? And you, you kind of, it's not that big a deal. You know, that's how you can, that's how you can, in a sense, protect against uh, stereotype threat is to, is to kind of disidentify, stop caring about the, the domain. And that's what you find throughout this literature. I mean, it's gotten to be a kind of orthodoxy that people don't even bother to, do, they first select women who are very identified with math, or they select students who are very identified with the domain, uh, because that's uh, who you get the effect on. Well, this has in it a kernel of a very important message, I think, which is that Again, I think the dominant understanding of these uh, students, of, of perhaps the whole achievement gap, if I can go back and refer to that, that problem, perhaps the, the dominant understanding is that uh, the, because we have lived in a world with negative images of our group, over time we begin to internalize those negative images. Maybe in the old days they would call that self-hatred. These days it's more typically called low, self, low expectancies, low expectations, low self-efficacy. Gets internalized, and then when we're in situations that challenge us, we kind of give up in the face of those low expectations. Well, I want to say that uh, the, the problem of the achievement gap, gap probably has two psychologies, two groups going uh, uh, on. Uh, if, if you will indulge the terminology, there may be a psychology for students who've already given up and may be in the academic rear guard of the group, but that there's another psychology closer to the one we're describing in our research for the academic vanguard of the group, for people who are uh, trying really hard to succeed, really care ab about succeeding, uh, the, the, the trouble they have may be more the trouble we're describing of dealing with stereotype threat and the distraction and the upsettedness that comes from uh, performing under situations where one is at high risk of being seen stereotypically, of being seen negatively. And that that happens for, a, you know, on a kind of frequent daily 
basis. That may be the challenge for the academic vanguard of the group, whereas uh, you know, a member of today's vanguard may be a member of tomorrow's rearguard. After, after being under that pressure for a long period of time as one ascends through school, uh, people may re resolve this threat reduce their sense of, of vulnerability to this threat by disidentifying with the domain, stopping to care uh, about the, uh, do the domain over a, a longer period of time. And so for people who've already given up, it, it will look like low expectations, low self-esteem, uh, you know, low self-efficacy perhaps, but they no longer care about the domain. On the other hand, at every level of schooling in the inner city, uh, and and you, at, uh, at you know at Harvard Law School, there probably is a very committed vanguard of that group that is really very seriously trying to be a good student, but is contending on a daily basis with the kind of pressure that I'm talking about. Uh, it's not a small pressure. Uh, you can imagine if, if you were flip it. Another example kind of maybe brings it to light. You can imagine a a, 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 a white guy trying to make it in the NBA, and he's spent his whole life trying to be a first-rate basketball player. And he's now trying out for the NBA. Well, he has an apprehension on a daily basis that people may see him stereotypically, that they may take his successes as kind of, well, passing things, you know, and his uh, any frustrations or failures he has, they may take those as kind of characteristic of him. Uh, they may wonder about what he's trying to do in this in this domain, and, and he's kind of got to perform on a daily basis under that prospect of being uh, seen that way. So that can become a cumulative, uh, have an accumulative effect, which just may make it difficult over time to persist uh, toward a goal like that. So I want to argue that the stereotype threat is, is, is consequential in shaping these, these things. Well, okay, uh, I want to move as quickly as I can into um, a more general model of how to think about uh, social identity threats in general. And when I say social identity, uh, you know, we've all got a bunch of them. You know, our, our race is one, our sex is another one, our religion is one, um, our sexual orientation is a social identity, our profession is a social uh, identity. All these kinds of things are social identities. Um, and I want to just to sketch in for you uh, a general model of how, uh, of what I mean by social identity threat. And it's got really kind of four uh, components to this uh, model. Uh, the first is that uh, when I know or sense that a given social identity of mine in a given setting could be seen negatively because of stereotypes or maybe just because of general animus toward my group, uh, that I, I don't know what I don't have to know that I am in fact being uh, looked down on because of this particular social identity. It's just that I know, given the history of the society that I'm in or this setting that I'm in, I could be. I could be. And just knowing that I could be uh, puts me in an almost necessary state of vigilance about whether I am, in fact, under that kind of uh, threat. So I, I want to argue that it's an almost structural feature of, of one's identity, in particular identities that we know are can be regarded negatively. 
that uh, you don't have to know whether you are or not. You just have to know that you could be, based on the stereotypes about your group, general reputation of people having animus towards your group, these kind of things point to the possibility that that particular identity could be something that in this setting could cause devaluation, cause people to uh, look down on me like the white guy trying to make it in the basketball uh, world. The second uh, feature of the, of the model is that <clears throat> because of this vigilance, it, it, it kind of exists in my mind like a general hypothesis about the context that, that I'm in, this, this vigilance. It, it's there as a possibility. I don't know if it's true, of course, but it's there as a possibility. And as a hypothesis about the context of my life, it's going to lead me to comb through the cues in my environment, the situations, the events, the conversations, the words, to see if that hypothesis is correct, that I would be, because of this identity, seen negatively. Uh, and cues that kind of support that, that hypothesis will strengthen it and make me even more vigilant and more mistrusting of the uh, context uh, I'm in. And cues that uh, diffuse it, that go against that hypothesis, they relax that vigilance. They kind of make me feel much more comfortable uh, in the situation. I don't have to be kind of wary uh, uh, about the situation. And then again, that's a sort of basic structural feature of having a problematized identity uh, in certain situations. Uh, the third point is a very important point, I think, which is that um, uh, nobody wants to believe that hypothesis. That's really important to, to understand. You, if, if you don't want to think that you could be, on the basis of your group identity, discriminated against or stereotyped, you don't want to think that. Thinking that is a very upsetting and daunting thing because it makes almost every, it cancels almost everything out. You mean I'm in a world where people really don't, because of this identity, are going to negatively stereotype me and really treat me negatively? That's, that's tough to concede. So uh, the, the, now you sort of get the, the dimensions of the, the, the poignance that's here. On the one hand, as a result of having this uh, identity and knowing how it could be stereotyped, I'm being vigilant. I have to almost, as a rational person, be vigilant to that possibility. But the, the other part of me does not want to admit this and does not want to see this be the case. Uh, and so I'm counter-arguing things, I'm involved in a whole dialogue, dismissing this event. No, well, you could say that. I remember my good friend Jim Comer said that he used to tell, give his kids a three strikes uh, a rule that first time, you know, you think that it's discrimination, ignore it. Uh, second time, you think that it's discrimination, ignore it. Third time, okay, uh, believe it at that point. And you can see what he's describing with that rule. He's giving his kids a kind of rule that gives them some, some space here. They, he knows that they're, that they're vigilant to that possibility, and, and yet he knows they do, that it's going to be very daunting and very upsetting to concede, give in to that fact. And so he's giving them a rule, which, which sort of you can use as a rule of thumb, like don't worry about it too much, don't sift through it all, just don't go there the first time, and don't go there the second time, the third time you may have to go there, okay? Uh, <laughs> Well, that's, that speaks both sides of this uh, dilemma I'm, I'm talking about. And the fourth point is just simply that uh, being in this fix, in a situation, is you know, a very tiring, uh, daunting, 
uh, kind of uh, thing where you're kind of figuring this out. And, and the thing that's keeping you in it, uh, trying to figure it out, is the, 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 the pressure, the desire to succeed there and stay there and not see the, the, the situation in, in negative terms as threatening and so on. So the, all those things are kind of pressuring you not into this uh, situation, and yet there's this hypothesis there that has to be kind of thought about. Uh, so that whole drama gets to be kind of, can be, uh, uh, you know, a kind of distracting, daunting uh, experience for somebody in a uh, situation and uh, may contribute to their eventually sort of disengaging the situation and uh, kind of disinvesting, disidentifying ultimately uh, with the situ situation. You know, first a lot of distraction and upsetness, then a kind of disengagement, then a kind of more thorough disidentification might take over over time in that, in that setting. Well, there's some interesting evidence in behalf of several points of this. One, uh, just with regard to the first and second part of the model, the, the sensitivity to cues in the environment of this uh, stereotype threat uh, phenomenon. Uh, one uh, very interesting one, well, actually both of these have to do with women and, and math, both of these uh, studies. Uh, the first one is very, um, I like it because it, it really illustrates this, the, the kind of ordinariness of the cues that are capable for a person in this vigilant state of setting off a sense of threat, reaffirming that hypothesis that a person's uh, under threat, distracting them and leading to uh, a performance and a distaste for the situation. Simple study. Women uh, and men are, are brought in to evaluate. This is done by Paul Davies and Steve Spencer. Uh, and they're brought in to um, evaluate television commercials. They're going to look at uh, a set of television commercials, and later on, they're going to have their memory for those commercials uh, uh, evaluated. So they uh, come in, and in one condition, they just see six kind of randomly picked off the television TV commercials. Nothing particularly dramatic about them. The other half sees another six television commercials, and two of these television commercials have a kind of uh, content in which a woman is depicted in a kind of silly way. She's sort of bouncing on the bed, really excited about an acne uh, product that has just come out, and uh, you, know, you know that kind of commercial, and uh, that's, that's it. Uh, then they're supposed to wait around for this memory task, and, and while they're waiting, in comes an, ex uh, an experimenter who would like them to help with a standardized test, norming the items on a standardized test, and they get to take this difficult test. And the interesting thing about this test is that uh, they can work on, it starts with math items, but at any time they want to, they can shift over to working on verbal items. So they can kind of escape the heat of the stereotype, so to speak. Uh, and so you can begin to see what's going to happen here. Uh, as the women uh, take this, this test, if they have been in that, in that uh, condition where they've seen the commercial with this sort of uh, uh, silly, demeaning depiction of women in it, uh, they, A, underperform on the math items that they do solve, and they very quickly give up on the math items and shift over to the verbal items where they tend to do very well. <laughs> So you, you sort of catch almost right in, in process, the process of, of some disidentification here, where it, it, just as stimulated by this little cue, uh, the experience, now they're in this experience taking this test and the whole frustration of the math items, ah, just let me get out of that domain and get into a domain where one feels more comfortable. Um, so I, I think that illustrates in some way the kind of uh, ease or the quickness with which 
little little cues. And another one that's especially uh, striking in that respect is uh, women. This was done at Brown uh, by Michael Inslet and another person named Bar Ziv, and uh, they simply did an experiment very similar to our women's and math experiment, except they varied for the women how many men were in the room taking the test with them. And the more men in the room, the worse the stereotype threat effect. The fewer men in the room, the better their uh, performance in the situation. Now, you would think uh, that that is a cue which shouldn't have any effect, which shouldn't mean anything. But again, you have to remember the structural circumstance of that identity in that situation. For women uh, in that situation, there is a kind of implicit, if you will, vigilance to what the situation means. And the more men in the situation changes the meaning of, the, uh, of it and kind of reinforces the standing hypothesis that in this particular situation, uh, you know, the, this, the, there could be this stereotype could be at play, or, or this, this view of the world could be at play. I know we were trying to, uh, we we're doing some research at uh, Medgar Evers Junior College in Brooklyn, and we were, we were comparing uh, students from from Caribbean backgrounds with African American students. It's kind of an interesting hypothesis that uh, Caribbean students may not feel that they're a member of the group that is negatively stereotyped in this way, and may not really feel the same degree of stereotype threat in the situation. So that was our hypothesis, okay? And it's often the case in science, your hypotheses are dashed. <laughs> uh, I don't know really the fate of that particular hypothesis, but I do know what happened, which is that when we went to the school, we found another research team there doing uh, uh, another stereotype threat experiment, experiment, except they weren't interested in comparing uh, uh, Caribbean and American uh, uh, students. They were just interested in using in the school because they had a lot of black uh, participants for research. And so they went in and they said, well, you know, I think what we, we got to make sure we just basically get the basic stereotype threat effect. So we better zap up some of the cues in this situation so we get it. And so they, they go into the classroom and they have the experimenter be white, wear a white lab coat, they wrap the, the standardized tests in big cellophane packages. They drop them down on the table, you know. They have proctors walk up and down the hall. Uh, <laughs> now these, from the standpoint of ETS, probably seem like completely neutral cues. Cues that, that you cannot, <laughs> that, that you, you know, but you can see those are big cues <laughs> about how, you, you know, the, the kind of, the way this whole situation is going to be viewed, the way you're going to be viewed, and, and so, sure enough, they get uh, stereotype trend in that, in that situation. Well, um, I could go on with those, uh, with those kind of data, because there are a lot of them ex that exist, but I do want to kind of, as I work toward the end here, uh, not leave with too dark a picture. Uh, because I, I do think in some uh, ways uh, the, the problems are, uh, that for a couple, uh, you know, reasons, I think that they're, uh, they're more solvable than we typically think. For one reason is, remember, we're working with people who really want to succeed and do not want to believe that they're being, uh, that, that they're subject to being prejudiced against or stereotyped. So you have to sort of keep that image in mind, is that, that, we're, that you're, you're, we're working here with, with these students, with students who have very uh, strong commitments and interests at base. Uh, and the other thing is that if the threats and the problems that undermine performance that I've been depicting are in the context of 
schooling and in the context of, of, of education, it's, it's kind of hopeful that you can change the context in ways that will, especially following the logic of our, exper of our experiments, that will greatly free people uh, of these pressures and increase uh, uh, performance. So performance is not coming, underperformance is not coming, I want to argue, especially for this vanguard of the group. It's not coming from giving up. It's coming from almost trying too hard against very powerful pressures that are difficult to see, difficult to describe, but are, are pressures nonetheless. And, and what schooling can do, I suppose, is take, is, is in a world where these stereotypes exist and these arrangements exist that promulgate these stereotypes, uh, in a world like that, create learning situations, niches, colleges, classrooms, mentoring relationships that um, uh, re that put that at bay and that reduce that hypothesis that one is is under threat. And if you take that as a general framework for for remedy, a couple you know uh, a lot of things can be done. Let me give you some examples. Uh, <clears throat> One experiment we did uh, way back, uh, but that is really relevant in this framework, is if you want to get rid of this race effect uh, here, what should you do? Should you really kind of improve the confidence and expectations of the African-American students? Should you really focus on, that's sort of the standard idea, that you need to pump up self-esteem, pump up confidence, and so on. Uh, our our reasoning here, you can see, is different. You need to change the context, the meaning of the testing situation. So we tried to pit these two things against each other in an experiment. We did uh, a lot of confidence building. We gave anagram uh, uh, out before, just before they take the, the, the critical test. We give them uh, a bunch of anagrams. Anagrams are, you know, kind of scrambled letters that you have to make into a word. And you can select them for looking very difficult to solve, but being, in fact, very easy to solve. Or you can select them for being very, looking very easy to solve, but being almost impossible to solve. And so you can give somebody an actual experience. So we, for an hour, put them through uh, an experience like this, where they're given these complicated-looking anagrams that we know are easy to solve, and they just nail them, one right after the other. And the test is presented as a test of real, this is a really a test of, of verbal ability, much like the digit span test of IQ, and you know, the whole rigmarole. And we build up their confidence. They tell us they're very, very confident in this situation. You give them the, the uh, regular old test we've been using, and it doesn't help a bit. Same old stereotype uh, uh, threat effects uh, emerge in that uh, situation. You can kind of, when you think about it, see why. Uh, we've been pumping up their confidence, and now they're taking these very, this very frustrating test. And uh, it's like, oh, God, uh, you know, maybe I'm going to blow the, the, the image of myself that I just built in this other thing. And then it sort of adds pressure to it, and their performance goes down. But if you, the other thing we pitted that against was simply presenting the test as racially fair. Now, that's very hard to do. It's very hard to convince. Uh, African-American students that you have a racially fair test, <laughs> standardized test. Uh, and uh, we had to go to great lengths uh, to do that. And this is where some of the deception of social psychology enters the picture. It's all for a good cause, but uh, uh, we, we had to go to great lengths to get the participants in this research to believe that we did this. And the link we had to go to ultimately was essentially to present the test as a test that had been constructed by uh, an integrated 
research team, that a lot of blacks had a role in, in, in developing this test. And, and we only have really 25 items. Uh, otherwise, of course, you would have heard about this, this racially fair test in the newspaper or something like that. Uh, but we have, over years, gleaned these 25 items that you would take that are, in fact, racially fair. Uh, and when you do that, they're now under this, again, this thing that's difficult to, to replicate in real life. You're creating this situation where there's this sense that I'm taking a genuinely racially fair test. Black students' performance goes way up in that, in that case. It matches uh, 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 white students' performance. And it doesn't make any difference what their expectation was when they went into the test, whether they'd been given a lot of success with those anagrams or whether they'd been given failure with those anagrams. Their performance goes up under that condition, which helps to, to kind of, again, underline the idea that the problem is more in the context of the learning experience than it is so much in the internal psyche of the uh, uh, of the of the student, and that maybe is where we should focus more. Another situation, mentoring. This is kind of on, on the a question, of, also on the question of of remedy. Uh, how does a white professor give feedback to uh, an African American student and have that feedback be trusted? Well, uh, we had students, white and black, come in to the laboratory, write an essay about their favorite teacher. When they finished the essay, we, clamped, we took a Polaroid picture of them and clamped it to the essay. Again, being social psychologist, uh, we ostensibly said that that picture was because if your essay uh, gets published in this journal that you're writing it for, then we'll have your picture. Of course, what we were really doing is giving the, the participants the knowledge that their race would be known by the person who graded their essay. They come back two, two days later. And we're interested in, in, and then we're going to give them real feedback. We really graded these essays. We're going to give them feedback on, on the essay, and we're going to measure how biased they think the feedback is and how motivated they are to improve their, their essay. And we're going to give the feedback in various ways to see which works and which doesn't work. And what doesn't work is very interesting. Just giving the feedback straight ahead or doesn't work. Black students see that feedback as biased, and seeing it as biased are not motivated to improve the essay. It doesn't help one bit to do what uh, most of, of us professors do, which is to add a very friendly ad hominem kind of praising statement before we give the feedback. <laughs> you're really nice, and your sister's nice, and I've known you many. Really. <laughs> you know, here's the feedback. <laughs> doesn't work. And I think that's interesting because I think it does capture, again, going back to that model uh, uh, I, I was trying to describe, it captures the structure of, what, uh, of how identity works here, is that if you're an African-American student, you are in a, in a situation where this feedback is inherently ambiguous. There's a lot of research by Crocker and Major in social psychology on attributional ambiguity. You just don't know how to interpret this feedback. It could be coming from that negative view of your group. It might not be, but it could be. And just having to be open and vigilant to that possibility, as you can see here, is actually alienating you from the feedback so that you can't quite just gobble that feedback up in a, in a take it at face value and just trust it because there could be something, there could be a bad thing in there somewhere. And so you're at a, a remove from 
from, from taking that feedback. White students in that situation doesn't you know, make any difference how you give the feedback. They're so happy to get you know, that kind of evaluation of a written essay of theirs that they, they take it no matter what you say. They're kind of happy to get it. But for a, a, a black student group who's negatively, this, there's just this, this inherent, almost unavoidable uh, difficulty there in interpreting it. Well, what did work tremendously well was when the uh, feedback giver said, look, uh, we're using really high standards in this journal, uh, and um, uh, it's the case that uh, I looked at your essay, and, and you're, uh, I think you can meet those standards. Well, that, that combination, 75% uh, of, of the black students took the, the, uh, uh, the essay home and brought it back uh, to have it further graded. Uh, Jeff Cohen is the person uh, who's now a professor at Yale who did this research, and he was doing grading all these essays. So much to his distress, all these essays came back and had to be actually graded and further commented on. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, that was a tremendous motiva high motivation. Uh, they saw the feedback in that situation as, as not biased. And, and uh, so I, you know, I, I want to uh, stress here that I think I'll, 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 some of this you know, we're trying to draw it out and make it be very clear about about the nature of the threats. Uh, but it's it's very important to realize that sometimes quite ordinary things are able to surmount them. Uh, just simply taking students seriously in terms of their intellectual and academic potential. That tells them that the stereotype is not at play in that relationship or in that classroom. And all of a sudden, everything changes. And having a relationship like that between uh, uh, a faculty member or other students and, and uh, a minority student, having that kind of relationship there uh, makes it easier for that student to disambiguate the other cues in the situation that may be suggesting threat, that may be there, you know, like the, you know, all kinds of cues suggest threat. And, you know, the fact that you are a minority in this situation, that, you know, what is that? That kind of tells you that in terms of this particular identity, not these other identities I have, but this particular identity in this particular situation, I'm a minority. Hmm. Uh, what does that mean? Well, there's a historical way of thinking about that minority. Hmm. There's a kind of uh, cultural hegemony at play in an academic environment about what is good and smart and so on. And often uh, that marginalizes things in, in, in my own experience. I was, I've been talking several times today about how much the Ken Burns jazz show meant to me as, a, as an African-American to have finally the contribution of, of, of our group to the very foundations of American culture be projected onto the mainstream. You know, it just hasn't happened. You know, one of the major criticisms that I have of the show is that it didn't do a good job of explaining how repressed that contribution has been and continues to be. It's not really adequately represented, for example, in university music departments or in uh, you know, grade school music programs. Why isn't it there? It's the primary basis of, of, American, of America's contribution to, to music. Why isn't it there? And the fact that it isn't there is another cue that suggests maybe this particular identity, among all my identities, may be at some risk in, in this situation. So all those are out there at play. And, and, and a relationship like this that I'm describing helps to disambiguate that, helps to, uh, again, for a person motivated not to see it that way, helps a person feel more secure in the environment. And that's how those things uh, work. I'll, I'll, I'll mention one more, and then I'll stop for questions. This is kind of a, a cute one, uh, or one that we're just in the process of working on. The question here is, uh, how do you design a larger uh, institutional 
framework that might reduce this sense of, of threat? What factors uh, are at play? And uh, so uh, this student, Valerie Purdy, did uh, a very simple experiment. She made up a newsletter for a Silicon Valley uh, company. And she had black students and white students read this newsletter. And in the newsletter, uh, it varies two things. It varies the general kind of, uh, if you will, diversity ideology that this company is advocating. So in one condition, the company says, uh, look, um, in this company, we're, we're, uh, we try to be colorblind. We try to treat everybody the same. We try to be fair. And we try to, at the end of the day, uh, recognize that everybody is the same. And uh, uh, that's what we're about in this, com in this company. Um, and in the other condition, it's the kind of the, that's the colorblind model. In the other condition, it's the multicultural model, where the company says, uh, look, um, in this company, we recognize that people, that there are differences out there, that people have different perspectives towards things, and we value those perspectives, and we try to integrate them into our company. So you can see these reasonable, kind of familiar models uh, uh, out there. Uh, you can see them in most diversity ads. Uh, Hazel Marcus, a colleague of mine, has, has really looked at about 500 advertisements and sort of pulled these, these models out. And uh, the other thing we've varied is the uh, number of minorities visibly in the company. Uh, we, we were moved by a quote that from Arthur Ashe, in which uh, the, 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 the African American tennis player, in which he said, "Whenever he comes into a room, he counts." Uh, and um, you know, that's a, again, if you're in a situation where that social identity is leading to a vigilance, you know, you count. So uh, we thought maybe they'll count, and so we varied. Uh, whether there are a lot of minorities in the situation or whether there were a few minorities in, in the situation. And then, of course, we had a control condition where we didn't say anything about any ideology at all. Uh, and I'll just sort of show you the results because they're just it's easier to talk about them that way. This is for white uh, uh, subjects looking at that, um, at those things. This is where they had a colorblind uh, ideology. This is we were calling it identity safety here. The multi, but it's basically the multicultural model that I described. And this is where they get no information about a model at all. And as you can see, the the, the orange is where there are a lot of minorities in the company, and uh, the green is where there are relatively few minorities in the company. And it's, it's kind of interesting. One thing that sort of strikes me. I don't know if this will hold up as this research goes on. This is kind of preliminary, um, but that well, white. Uh, uh, subjects. These are both Sanford students and people, regular citizens who ride the train from Palo Alto to San Francisco. So it's a kind of, you know, sec cross section of, of Silicon Valley people. They kind of like it when you say something about uh, how the company is going to handle uh, diversity. So they kind of like that uh, uh, to some degree. And uh, uh, so that's interesting. And what happens for for African American students, if I can this straight here is uh, this. And again, this is kind of uh, relevant to some of the things that we're talking about. It's interesting, saying nothing about the ideology of the company, uh, black students seem to trust that. And, and again, uh, I want to keep in mind that one component of the model where, where the, the, the psychology here is the desire to see the world as not a threatening world. That is, very, that is a very compelling thing. And so saying nothing about it is just fine. Um, saying that it's a multicultural model, that's pretty cool. Even saying that it's a colorblind model is cool if there are other minorities in the company. 
But if there aren't any minorities in the company, saying that the ideology of the company is colorblind and fair, and at the, uh, you know, you can just, <laughs> that's a bad cue. <laughs> and uh, the trust level uh, is not very high of, uh, uh, at all. And you can explain that probably in a variety uh, of ways against the evidence that uh, there aren't very many minorities in this company claiming that the company is colorblind. Uh, is kind of maybe not as plausible, or it means that the company doesn't really care about getting any more minorities. It's just taking this position as a as a justification. And so, uh, the ideology that is at play in an organization in a unit like this can have some uh, consequences in conjunction with the uh, you know the, the the numbers that in it. If there is a situation where there are relatively few uh, minorities, then it does seem to be uh, important to acknowledge differences and to talk about uh, th that seems to be a, a framework, a model that seems to be more trustworthy and alleviate the concerns that might otherwise be there. Well, uh, you can see here what we're trying to do across a variety of, of things is to converge in, in the more recent years of this uh, research program, converge on some general set of variables and frameworks for, for how you can diffuse this threat, both in one-on-one -on -one relationships uh, and in larger uh, uh, context relationships. Um, and so I'm tempted to go on with a few others, but I'd better stop so you have a chance to ask questions. So I'll stop at this point. Thank you. Oh, okay. Yes. Thank uh, you. Could could you comment on the uh, usefulness or lack of usefulness in the context of stereotyping of uh, environments that protect groups? For example, all-girls schools, uh, black colleges, that sort of thing, and whether it has shown to be of any use or lack of use or just what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the question is, is whether schools that are more homogeneous around some identity like sex or, or race uh, would be effective. Um, you know, I, I should give a complicated answer to that. I, I, I used to be, my impulse is to is to not like those environments. <laughs> uh, I mean, I just come from, a, from a, an era where uh, integration and so on was so important that it, it seems always to me to be a kind of concession to to uh, to advocate you know racially homogeneous in, in, or, or, or sex homogeneous environments however having said that as and I think that's still where I would land on it uh, if I had a child who wanted to be a, a, a doctor or in the quanti in quantitative fields I might just in, in following the evidence that's out there, uh, be more interested in a black school or a woman's school. Uh, for example, uh, historically black colleges educate only about 16 or 17 percent of, of African-American college students anymore, but they still graduate about 65 percent of all of those who graduate in quantitative fields, and this includes medicine and everything else. So if you're, you know, if you're sitting there thinking about where your child is likely to 
to you have to know kind of the personality and so on and the interest of, of the of a child I'm sure but but those statistics you know you might want to pay attention to if you were a a, a, a person uh, a parent in that situation or a student in that situation still what ultimately you have to kind of come back into uh, an integrated American mainstream to to uh, thrive and, and and function and so uh, that's what makes those schools a kind of perhaps false uh, security. It may, it may provide a security for, though it might, it might still provide security long enough for a person to get a sort of toehold along a certain career path. So, the, so you, again, you have to be open to that possibility. Uh, but I, I, I think that there's, it, it doesn't solve the larger question, uh, A, because there aren't enough of those schools really to be of great, uh, to you know, to educate the populations that might might go to them, so that's a, a serious limitation. And it's just not clear to me. I don't think it's really clear uh, what the experience is coming from those back into uh, an integrated mainstream where um, um, these threats are going to be there again. So I, I know that's an unsatisfying, <laughs> complicated answer, but that's about the best I can do right now. Generally, says home like all girls' school, it's actually good because you take away all those considerations. The only thing you can pre perform really good is you, you dis disassociate your gender or everything, but focus on the subject. If you really like the subject, doesn't matter whoever you think, you know you always do good. And and by studying all those things, it reminds people that it's important in academic to to regard how other people think about you instead of the subject you are studying. As I just feel like maybe go back to all girls school or all black school, you just become a habit that's, that's not irrelevant, it, that you know all your gender and all your... All, or so your you're, you're, saying, you're saying go back to those, to that kind of, to those kind of schools because it's, you it's, can put aside all these concerns and you can right. focus I mean, on your work during that period of time. On the subject. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's an argument I can't, you know, I'd like to, to counter-argue you, but and, and, and actually I, <laughs> uh, there's um, something to that. There's other things, like right now I'm very active on the website called Advocado. It's a place that you can say just create a nickname. Nobody knows your gender. Nobody knows if you're coming from third, third world or, or American, and people start arguing. And sometimes I feel very... Very interesting people would think I'm a male, you know, with all my argument. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it, it gives me confidence that it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and, and it's very, and, and I even think of experiment in, say, the classroom, the professor lets students just sign in by pseudonym and grade all their works, doesn't even know who they really are. And then at the end of the semester, you know, you, you call each student in and say, okay, What's your nickname? And this is your grade. And, and then the prof it's like a counter-education. The professor might have his own prejudice against the student. He might think, oh, this, this nickname must be a girl, and that nickname must be a, a boy, and he will find out it's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, hmm. <laughs> oh, well, I sympathize with the... <laughs> with the uh, you know, with the desire to be in an environment where, you know, you're almost identity free in, in some way. I mean, that, that kind of, that, that, that almost fantasy environment. Maybe sometimes you can get that on the internet, but uh, um, it's difficult to sustain that across the whole educational uh, uh, 
experience, as tempting as it as it might be. Yeah. I understand your optimism, what you were talking about at the end of your talk, that if we can learn how to better sort of control context, situation, we can diffuse a lot of this. But that also, if you flip that, is a very negative conclusion, it seems to me, because someone who maybe has had a lot of success, who has sort of learned the kinds of strategies, there's always a risk that suddenly you find yourself in a situation, some of these things get activated and your, you know, your strategies, your mechanisms, your self-confidence, all of that collapses. When you have a model which depends more on the external situation than sort of your internal resources, which is what you've been emphasizing, mm -hmm. there's always then the situation that could, you know, make it all fall apart. And uh, I'm yeah. concerned that you don't, well, I, I'm asking, do you think there are ways that people build up those resources which eventually allow them to resist more, or is that threat always there? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because it gives me a chance to uh, describe the, the other side of it, which is what individuals can do, uh, and, and which I think we commonly do to, to reduce that, and it really wouldn't be a complete uh, talk without that. Uh, I, I, do, I do think that... Um, that oftentimes when people are in an environment for a long time, let's say me in my psychology department for a long time, uh, I, people know so many other things about me uh, that, that are more important to them in dealing with me that it becomes really plausible to me and, and almost unassailable that, that they're not using race, at least very frequently, to, to judge me or to see me through that lens and so just by dint of having been in that situation uh, for a long period of time and in, in, in that set of relationships for a long period of time uh, I don't feel that you, you kind of feel like that like that, that the, the stereotype threat in a sense goes away I can remember years of working on, on research that didn't have to do with race and I was in Seattle and lived there for a long time and and uh, people knew, you know, people in the little niche that I lived in uh, knew uh, so many other things about me that race just seemed to almost go away in that, in that world. However, I would get on an airplane and fly to Washington and be on some panel, and all of a sudden you'd be, you know, the black guy on the panel, or you'd be representing uh, a point of view or something, or you, you'd all of a sudden see it. Or you'd go across the hall into a different department of the same uh, university that didn't really know you, and they would maybe think very differently of you. They would use the stereotype and the things about the stereotype. So, so it is a very, it is tied to context like that. But I, I think just sheer being in a context for a long period of time, a student who's here for a long period of time and has a lot of experiences and has a variety of relationships can, can come to feel quite comfortable in, 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 in an environment. Uh, and so I, I really want to to, to stress, and when you think about it that way, you, you, you can see how feasible uh, getting rid of this or reducing this threat in, in, in a serious way uh, uh, can be, especially in the context of, of uh, having uh, multiple relationships. I think that's, that's particularly uh, important. It's, it's important for uh, minority students to have a kind of critical mass and I think a presence on campus and good, very good in-group relationships and support from that standpoint. But I also think it's important to have out-group relationships. 
because those relationships can uh, uh, diffuse this, you know, you begin to, to see that race isn't quite as important in all kinds of every, every uh, you know, all uh, aspects of life and the degree to which race is used to interpret experience gets diffused a little bit and a person starts to feel more comfortable in, in, in the environment as a, as a result of that kind of, uh, uh, of, experience, of experience. Whereas if you contrast that to, to being in a, a, a very segregated social network in, an, in an, uh, a university, uh, I, I'm really familiar with the University of Michigan, uh, so I think about that a lot. But if you, if you, contract, if you think about being in a very uh, uh, racially isolated net, network, that, begin, that can reify race and the degree to which one's racial identity, that particular social identity, gets used to interpret all kinds of things in, uh, uh, in experience and can am amplify the sense of alienate, the threat and, and then alienation and, and so on. But I, I do think at, at the individual level, people do have uh, a great deal of control, uh, or at least influence, capacity to influence the sense of, of threat that they can, that, that one feels in an environment just by these things. The more the environment is engaged, the more it gets normalized, the more people get familiar with you, the less that it becomes plausible that that's, a, that's an issue, and, and, and I think that, that can uh, reduce it. Also, you know, there's just old-fashioned um, uh, hard work uh, remember, in all these experiments, stereotype threat doesn't come into play until there's frustration. So if a person takes a standardized test and they don't feel much frustration on it, they're, they're kind of moving along pretty easily, you don't get much stereotype uh, threat. And I think that's analogous for uh, other situations in, in a, a, a student's experience. Hard work uh, kind of makes the academic experience and task more manageable, less frustrating, a person organizes to, to, to do those things, then they're also less likely to uh, experience the threat. So I mean, at least those are some of the things on the individual side that would be implied by the same reasoning. I do like to focus on the context side because I think that's in some ways resisting the disposition we tend to have to focus on the experience of the, 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 the students for, well, you know, the expectancy or esteem notion is often focused on, on what the students should do in order to overcome the, the problems. And I, I want to kind of put the, the light on all parties. So, yes. I found it interesting um, in, in some of the experiments how easy it was to reduce the, the threat and I was wondering, heading in the opposite direction, how easy is it to create a threat, um, whether it's something that needs to build over a considerable time or have there been experiments? And almost looking at it from an opposite uh, standpoint also, if you're, if you're able to create a, th um, a positive uh, kind of stereotype so to get people to perform better, uh, in some cases. Uh, yeah, it, well, in, re in answer to the first question, it is pretty easy to, to uh, create threat. Um, you just need to, if, if, you know, as one has done a lot of experiments like this, if you're having a rough time getting a stereotype threat effect uh, in the laboratory, you kind of know, just add a few cues, make it look more formal, make it look more, you know, uh, serious and uh, like a real standardized test, up the, up the, the you know, the, the cues that signal that you get more threat. I guess I was, my question is, 
create perhaps an identity with a new group that previously haven't felt threatened by, for example, telling people right before they take a test that people with brown eyes tend to perform oh. much better on this test than people with blue eyes. Yeah, it's a good... Uh, you, you can, for example, I, I know and we, we have a, a, a paper in production in which you can eliminate, really, the stereotype threats effect on women's math performance by reminding women just before they uh, take the test that they're uh, Stanford students. And that, that evokes another identity. It's like the, the Asian study I, I described where, yes, you can, you can play around with that uh, pretty easy by evoking, making salient one identity uh, uh, or, or another. And you can do it in, in, in studies on race, too. You evoke a different, you know, you were all Princeton students. Well, that's a kind of very positive uh, identity, and it can make a person, you know, feel very much less under threat in that situation. Yes. You mentioned mentoring is a, a possible solution to, I guess, um, the stereotype threat. And did you guys actually do this research, and what were your results? What, what, I, I didn't hear the last. You said mentoring as one of the possible solutions. Yeah. To the problem of the academic gap. Did you do this? Um, what were your results? As to. Yeah. The uh, the study I described about uh, you know giving feedback was an attempt to kind of in an experiment bottle the critical aspects of a mentoring relationship that would work. Uh, also, though, I can point to a number, uh, as I've been doing over the course of these days, to a number of mentoring programs, like the University of Michigan has one, that are very effective, where students come in and they get a relationship with uh, a faculty member. They're kind of appointed to them as research assistants in their laboratory. And they, um, this, this really has a very a positive effect on all kinds of academic outcomes, like retention and grades and, uh, uh, and the like. Uh, I think if you were to take a lesson from our experiments and, and use it in shaping a mentoring relationship, it might be very, uh, it would be very helpful in those to focus them on the, the student's academic uh, potential. Just focusing them on the friendship, that's probably a, a good thing and uh, maybe a necessary thing, but it's not a sufficient thing. The, the question, the stereotype that's out there is about potential. And, and so when uh, a student understands that a faculty member is taking their potential seriously, that is a very powerful experience. I think most uh, adults in the room can kind of almost remember points in their lives where adults took them very seriously. And, uh, and that is a, can be a very transformative thing. It can really direct a person's uh, a career. It certainly was my experience getting into psychology where somebody said, you know, you really did well on the midterm and maybe you should come over to the psych department sometime. I can almost remember the quote. And, and uh, this was a long time ago, I can tell you. Uh, but it, it kind of signaled, well, hey, you know, I mean, you're kind of out there looking for what to do with your life. And, you know, it's kind of a background question. And, and here's somebody that thinks that, you know, you kind of belong in this, in, in this domain that you've got. And they're not responding to you because you're, uh, you know, a friendly person. They're responding to you because they think you could do this. And, uh, so I, I think that's the power of mentoring relationships, that they have a special power to do that. And then once that relationship is there, as I was saying earlier, it can help the student re, you know, reinterpret the cues that are around them, interpret them in much less uh, threatening ways. And so it's, it's, a, I, I, it's a good strategy. Yes. Maybe I'm missing some people to my sides here. 
It seems to me from uh, all this discussion that uh, uh, tests are still very, very important. Uh, and they're important from, uh, from both standpoints, from negative to positive. Uh, and so I wonder, uh, there's so many uh, objections to so many of the regular and standardized tests, whether there's much uh, effort uh, and impetus to get psychiatrists or psychologists to review tests before they're given. Mm. Um, no, there isn't to my knowledge. <laughs> there ought to be. Yeah, uh, much much interest. It's, it, you, you raise something that's interesting to me, which is that tests are often thought of in our society as things that are capable of just being unobstructed measures of cognitive ability, that, there's, that there is no real psychology going on there, there's no emotional functioning person. This is a, a test that can, in a, in a, in, in a single uh, sitting, uh, measure an ability so well that we will let that measure affect the allocation of opportunity to that person for the rest of their lives. <laughs> so we, we use uh, tests in this culture in a very high-stakes way. Um, and I, I think that that increases the degree to which psychology, emotions of, for, for all kinds of people are very involved in, on, in test performance. We're, we're sort of capturing in this research the way in which one's uh, uh, racial or gender identity might affect the psychology of taking a test, like the SAT or something of that sort. But uh, uh, you can imagine all kinds of other experiences that, that are going to make these tests, are going to inject psychology and, and emotion into, into test performance. So I do think we need a serious, um, and, and you know, both presidential candidates, for example, were, are hammering testing. So we're about to go on a testing binge uh, uh, and, and high-stakes testing at that. So where you have to get tested to graduate from each grade, and you have to get tested to assign to tracks, and you get tested to whether well, you're going to promote and be, be promoted and graduated. And, and you know, we're going to really, it's almost as if we don't trust schools much. And so we're going to test them. <laughs> and that's, the, you know, I don't know, you can see the logic. And, and I hope you can see from all this research that, that I'm pretty uh, skeptical about that. There's somebody over here that, yes. Uh, in a society where it has many groups, in a society where it has many groups or with many identity, uh, you were saying, uh, how and for what purpose these uh, stereotypes were formed? Now let me be specific on my, uh, in using your example, say women are poor in math. Was that formed by men to convince themselves? Or formed by men to convince women? Or formed by women to convince men? Or formed by women to convince themselves? And if so, are there any, some benign result of this formation of this concept? Mm -hmm. Well, you're asking, a, a, the question is almost like how stereotypes get formed, and uh, you're asking, uh, uh, you know, what I have to call a very heavy question, because <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're describing the creation of, of, sort of what, are, what are called in the social sciences, you know, collective representations of, of groups and so on. How do these things get evolved and negotiated and so on? Let me just give you a quick story. This is a story about how uh, in American history, 
um, the concept of, of white and black or a concept of white and colored gets um, uh, created. And I'm going out of a limb here because I'm you know, just a complete amateur historian. Uh, but I'm reading a book, you know, and uh, uh, it's called One Drop of Blood, and it has uh, a variety of these uh, of, of analyses in it, but it describes how uh, American society in the period before the Revolutionary War, as it shifted from a fur trading company to a, a, a country to a country of settlers, uh, when it was the fur trading country, all kinds of during that era, the French, the Spanish, the Choctaws, the Cherokees were all groups of people that kind of played different roles in this industry and, and negotiated themselves. And there were things like slavery and so on uh, present, but they weren't conditions attached to any particular group. Anybody could be a slave. <laughs> Equal opportunity slavery. All groups took them. Uh, and. Um, you know, it's kind of like being a prisoner of war, and if you had children, they weren't slaves, and so on. But as this uh, settler, uh, the, as the fur industry dried up, and and uh, Europeans wanted more to settle the United States, uh, a, a different dynamic started to uh, um, emerge, and um, slavery became a condition of being a colored person. And it was a life condition. I was learning tonight from somebody sitting next to me that, that uh, the, there was, a, a, at the same time, uh, a, a prohibition against bringing slaves in. I know this is a long story, but so hold with me a second. Uh, bringing slaves in, there was a prohibition, so, so you couldn't bring in African slaves with the same number. So it, it began, if you were here and you were colored, you were a slave. And your children were a slave. So the whole conception of slavery changed. Uh, and uh, marriage laws began to emerge, which were, uh, if, you marry out, if you marry either a Native American or an African, uh, you are no longer white. And so through a variety of practices, laws, events, historical twists and turns, negotiations of power, all these sorts of things, uh, emerges a concept of white and a concept of colored. And they're very different uh, 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 roles in society played by this. And then there start to be ideas that justify those roles. And, and so certain ideologies start to emerge, like the inferiority of the colored uh, people. And that starts to be a stereotype, you know, a collective representation. So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm going way too far out on, on a limb that I'm unconfident about, but, but just to give you some idea of how different societies through their history, how, how the, the machinations of events and, and relations and so on uh, can create images and stereotypes. Uh, then once you've got that, that idea in place, you know, and then you, you've got a group of people enslaved, and then you've got that same group of people legally segregated all the way up till 35 years ago. Uh, and the psychic energy that is needed to justify that, you get uh, a, a lot of pressure that collectively creates images of inferiority. And, and, you, you, uh, uh, and once they're there, they begin to be the things that, inter that, 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 that are, are used to interpret people. In a different society with a different history, you'll get a different pattern of stereotypes and, and collective representations. But I, I think that's kind of some, gives some sketch about, about where I think these things come from. Yeah, you can have your hand up, up there. Uh, I was just curious whether, because this, a lot of the research is very uh, relevant to the court system. 
which uses stereotypes and lawyers even use these stereotypes and play on them and whether you have done any kind of research in the court system uh, no I haven't uh, members of the faculty Su Susan Fisk may be not here anymore but a, a lot of social psychologists do do uh, research that bears on the judicial system, the criminal justice system, and so on. Uh, obviously, the kind of stereotypes I'm talking about play a tremendous role in the perception of people, in the perception of, of their behavior, of their likelihood of committing crimes, of whether they uh, uh, have committed a crime, and so on. I was reading in the newspaper this summer, the Justice Department did some survey which showed that if you get arrested for, for drugs and you're black, you're 49 times more likely to go to prison for that event than uh, if you're not black. Uh, so there is a strong set of stereotypes and images that we have that affect the perception of, of people in the administration of, of, uh, of justice, the administration of health care. That, that data has been coming out. Uh, the racial profiling. In California, we have a kind of conduit of racial profiling. You get uh, uh, in, in contact with the justice system, and then once you get in contact with the justice system, you, the justice system becomes more harsh toward you, and you're more likely then to get incarcerated, and so you have these way disproportionate populations of minority populations in, in an ever-expanding prison system. And you know, So those, those kind of uh, things, if you're, a, if you're a psychologist, you can really see the kind of interconnectedness that, that stereotypes can can play in a situation, so they're very important there. Yes? Uh, I, I wonder if you could comment on the affirmative action issue. Uh, most black critics of affirmative action uh, say that uh, when elite universities give special preference to black students, it reinforces negative stigmas and stereotypes concerning their academic competence. What, what's your own uh, take on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, questions about affirmative action, and um, uh, one, there, there is a, a story here that there's an interesting, another interesting book comes to mind about psychic damage due to being, uh, the, the psychic damage of, of being African American in American society. And that uh, idea has been used throughout the 20th century for various political uh, gains. Many of them have been very positive gains. For example, the idea that segregation caused, racial segregation caused psychic damage to African Americans and that the reason for getting rid of racial segregation in schools was to, uh, almost a therapeutic value, that it would, uh, it, it would help get rid of the psychic damage on, uh, uh, being done to black people by segregation. That was a real rationale in the 1954 Supreme Court decision. Well, and in the Civil Rights Act, and a lot of programs followed suit. Toward the 80s, uh, a lot of those programs met with frustrations. And uh, a, a conservative kind of ideology emerged, which argued that it was the programs that was causing the psychic damage to, to uh, uh, African Americans. And so programs like urban renewal, welfare, affirmative action, and the like all kind of got into this notion that they were causing the psychic damage that was undermining the outcomes of, uh, of, of this group and, and other uh, minority groups. So uh, it's interesting. I, I, I think with regard, so I think that is one way of understanding the critique of, of affirmative action is that it's almost like arguing 
that the thing done to correct the psychic damage in 1965 is now the thing that's actually causing the damage. And uh, I, 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 the best I can say is that there isn't much evidence that any stigma attached to affirmative action causes much psychic damage. Can it reinforce it, not, not cause, but reinforce negatives and stigmas and stereotypes that are already out there and have very deep cultural roots, as you uh, explained? Yeah, it can, depending on how it's implemented. If it's implemented and, and, and dis discussed in the ways that you're describing it, that, that, or, or maybe that, that uh, uh, let me say, many or some opponents of affirmative action would describe it, that those preferences are undue preferences, for example, at college admissions or, or at, at admissions in companies or in, the, in, in industry, that those preferences are letting into school people who don't deserve to be there or wouldn't otherwise be there. If it's represented like that and it's kind of, you know, really reified in the environment, uh, it, it can be disturbing. Uh, and I'd be the, it, you know, it, re, it, it does reinforce the stereotypes, but affirmative action needn't be done that way. Um, uh, when I think about the way affirmative action is implemented on college campuses, for example, uh, it needn't be done in a way that links minority identity with a need for remedying deficits that are there because a, a, a too liberal policy is letting in people who don't have the skills. That's not true. <laughs> uh, they're, 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 the affirmative action just isn't, it just, the, the truth of the policy, of the implementation of the policy, isn't that. You're, the students are, are admitted here who can all do the work and all can succeed very well in, in uh, uh, the universities, to, unless there's a, there's a place that's doing it very cynically. But the idea that you're letting uh, African-American students in, for example, beneath some standard that you're letting white students in is not true. Uh, for almost any uh, African-American student on a college campus, there are several white students with exactly the same test scores and grades and so on. So the, 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 oftentimes the, the, the mean gap in, in, uh, in test scores, for example, in, in California there was the argument that the black students admitted to Berkeley had 200 points lower than white students. They got rid of affirmative action, the black students admitted to Berkeley still have a 200-point lower SAT score because that SAT that gap is not coming from a policy that is letting in black students at beneath some level at which white students are admitted. That's not happening. What's happening is that there are, are fewer black students in the very high end of the SAT distribution. And, and I, for one, would like to point to our research as some kind of explanation for that, why that, why that situation e exists. But getting rid of affirmative action is not going to change that uh, uh, situation. And those data are often used to kind of misrepresent the admissions process as a process that's letting in kids who, who otherwise uh, uh, don't deserve there to be there. So I, I think an accurate representation of the way affirmative action is actually exists on, on college campuses, for example, would go a long way to not reinforcing uh, the stereotypes and maybe even countering the stereotypes. Then if there's programming for minority students on college campuses, it might be very smart to follow some of the strategies that, that come from, uh, from our research and other people's research. Have the programs be very demanding programs that affirm people's potential to really succeed at the highest level in an institution. The, a program set up with that uh, a kind of 
of focus and that kind of orientation instead of expectations towards uh, students is going to be a program that, go, that doesn't re reinforce those stereotypes, much like the, the, the mentor strategy in that experiment I was describing. High, expect high standards, uh, we really expect you to meet those standards. That kind of, def that kind of goes against the, the, the stereotype that other, otherwise might be there. So with regard to um, affirmative action, so much is in the implementation of it. So much is in the implementation of it. And I think out of some, some very good intentions sometimes, we've often implemented them, and here's where I agree with you, we've often implemented them in ways that reinforce the stereotypes that are there. We've often described the policy in ways that reinforce the stereotypes that, that are, are there, but we needn't do that. And, and, and so I, I think we need to be more mindful uh, it, of, of how we represent things uh, in, in, in discussing these kinds of things, and, and we can then avoid some of that reinforcing concern you have. Claude, you've been on your feet for two hours. I think it's time <laughs> to say a grateful thanks and bring these formal proceedings to a close. Thank you.